Kirafano, welcome to When Lambda Sun, the podcast. Um, oh, we're back here in a new series. So this series is going to be a little bit different. It's just me, Aaron, um, this time around. Dale's super busy with some study, hoping he'll make some guest appearances as the season goes on. But this is sort of just a real mini-series um, as we head up to election. There's some real important, important corridor, um that we wanted to have. So yeah, hopefully Dale turns up later on, but we're going to have some, I guess guests who come alongside as well or you might just have me who knows but today we have a very special guest host and that is summer hendry summer do you want to introduce yourself who are you hi erin um i'm your wife it's nice to be on your show um we just had a little baby that's two weeks old so we're just chilling and trying to recover from that, and Aaron invited me to have a chat about um, this particular podcast, so I decided I'd come on and join him. And this is real podcast life, we're right now uh, in between feeds, sitting on our bed, recording this podcast while we really hope and pray that the baby doesn't wake up. So you might hear the baby in the background just sort of muttering. So um, yeah, welcome to life with the Hendries. This is great. So, um, today we've got an awesome, an awesome guest, uh, Peter Thorburn. You may know him from our season one. Uh, if you haven't listened to that episode with Pete, we're really going to be building on a lot of what he spoke about around addiction. Also, he talked a lot about his credentials and who he is and why he's got a lot of, you know, why he's someone who's an authority in the space in that episode. We didn't really go into it a lot in this, so I really encourage you, go back to that episode, have a listen, we'll link it below. Um, and then come back to this conversation if you haven't already. But otherwise, we're going to be talking about the upcoming referendum of the legalization of cannabis. So this is going to be a really good conversation. There's a lot of really awesome knowledge here. Pete is a wealth of knowledge. Um, yeah, we hope you enjoy it. Um, also note that his microphone was a bit iffy. So the information is really cool. Um, I've just listened to it. So worth going through even if there's a few hiccups. That's all. Also, this is my first time actually doing the editing. Normally, Summer is our editor, so yeah, be with us. But anyway, let's get into the show. It's going to be great. Hey, kia ora, Pete. It's great to have you back on the show, mate. How you doing? Yeah, yeah, not too bad, bro. You know, uh, as good as can be. So I guess we'll get into it, right? So like last time we talked about sort of like addiction as a whole and what that is. Um, and this time around, I thought it'd be good to talk about I guess we looking up to the referendum, like looking at some of the myths around it. They know what it is, what it isn't. Um, but I guess to start, like what is, you know, in the context of things, what is weed and like, how does it work from your perspective? A nice simple question for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it is a bit of a complex question. Uh, and firstly, I'd just like to change uh, the language around it. It's cannabis is uh, what it's officially called. Uh, terms like dope and weed, and um, uh, marijuana have all stemmed out of a range of sort of opinions around cannabis. But cannabis is a is a plant, um, as many will know. It is uh, has the potential to get people high, uh, and that's what we know it for. But actually, in cannabis, you know, there's over 140 different cannabinoids in marijuana, and we're finding out more and more about it 
all the time. The ones that most people know about is tetrahydrocannabinol, of course, which is the one that gets you stoned, and CBD, which is the one that many people are using at the moment to abate things like anxiety and, and stress and post-traumatic. These are available and accessible at the moment. But as humans, and, and pretty well, well, all animals, we have an endocannabinoid system, just like we have neurotransmitters around dopamine and serotonin and uh, endorphins or adrenaline and glutamate. And, and, and so we have a whole lot of neurotransmitters, but one of our biggest neurotransmitters in our body is the endocannabinoid system. And I guess really uh, to try and simplify it, what it is, is the homeostasis or it, it, it's a neurotransmitter that is sent to particular areas of your body to fight against things that are attacking it, right? And, and so that's what your endocannabinoid system does. And we produce cannabinoids naturally. So um, if we eat really good food like high omega-3s and omega-6s, our body produces cannabinoid, right? Which helps if you've got an oxidated liver or if you've got something wrong within your body because you're eating that good food, it sends the cannabinoids down to help uh, those parts of the body. So it is an, uh, an essential part of our makeup. Um, and what cannabis does and what pretty well any drug does to our body it mimics neurotransmitters. So if we're looking at things like phenamine, it tends to mimic things like dopamine and serotonin, whereas cannabis tends to work on that endocannabinoid system. It has some secondary reactions, things like an increase in dopamine as well, but um, primarily it works on that a little bit in the serotonergic system, but it is naturally occurring within us. And actually, there's lots of things that we can eat that produce a cannabinoid-like effect in our body, are things like cocoa, dark chocolate, pepper, uh, which contains piperinol, which activates uh, endocannabinoid system. Um, our Pacific Pharma, right, kava. You know, uh, when we think about kava, it's legal everywhere. Uh, you can go to the dairy and buy it. It's five bucks a packet. You know, there's no age restrictions. But kava has lactones in it. Kava lactones are called. And one of those lactones actually activates the endocannabinoid system very similar to, to cannabis, right? And so... Um, there's a lot of myths out there around cannabis, uh, but from a medicinal perspective, um, there, there is so much yet to be learned about it and so much that we know, we're starting to know about it. And the, the fact that it's illegal um, has made it really hard for New Zealand and other countries to actually research it. Um, because you can't get the licensing to, you know, traditionally to grow it and research and, and then utilise it because it was classified under misuse. So as far as um, cannabinoids go, we produce some naturally, um, and if we're in good health, we produce quite a lot of them. Uh, what cannabis does, uh, depending on the cannabinoid that's in the particular cannabis product and, and what variants are, it, it can impact on us um, quite differently depending on strain potency around so you so you said that there's obviously a lot of myths out there like i've, I've got some that i think are probably some common concerns that people have yep. around you know we'd everyone sort of know someone that's used it and will have their own experiences with it um and i wonder if you could speak to those and just tell us you know what your view on that is so i guess one of the main concerns that people have is that we can cause psychosis or schizophrenia is that true like or how does that work so it's really interesting around that. So what we know, and I'm not here to say that um, cannabis causes no harm, right? At the end of the day, what we know is about 8% of the population, and this is Ministry of Health, so about, will have some adverse impact. 
Uh, what the evidence shows us is the younger they start um, and the greater the potency, uh, the more likely it's to have an impact. However, the idea that cannabis causes schizophrenia is really a little bit of a myth. And what we, what we mean by this is that every person is born different. And so we all have different makeup, you know. For example, I'm ADHD, right? And ADHD, uh, if we look from a, a medical or a biological, right, is dopamine deficiency. And so what they do to young people that are ADHD, they will give them things like Ritalin, which is a form of amphetamine. It increases dopamine to normal amounts, and so they can concentrate clearly. But what we know is things like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, meth-affected children, some of our autistic bano, um, all produce less dopamine based on uh, their underlying condition. And so their response to drugs will be quite different from someone that's born with, say, high dopamine, or someone that's been through really immense trauma, either in utero or in that early developmental stages of life, right? And so what happens is if you're exposed to trauma or violence, domestic violence, you produce adrenaline, norepinephrine, you know, that fight-flight response, and prolonged trauma and, and prolonged sort of the side effect of that is things like early onset use of drugs because you're trying to cope with violence you've been through. But actually, many that have been through trauma are far more susceptible to psychosis. And that, we believe, is because they overproduce dopamine. And then what they do is they'll use a drug like cannabis or like amphetamines or, or like ecstasy or psilocybin, magic mushrooms, because they already produce too much dopamine and they're already overproducing it. And they'll use a drug that increases dopamine and then all of a sudden every star in the sky is a satellite following them. Now that can be brought on naturally through genetics, right? Or brought on by the overproduction of dopamine artificially through like methamphetamine, which increases dopamine by 1500% in a fully developed adult. When we think about our young, and this is the challenge that we have, a young person doesn't develop their prefrontal, a lot later than what we thought. But while that prefrontal cortex isn't developed, they produce, when exposed to things like ketamine, about twice the amount of dopamine. So the, the effect of cannabis on an adolescent brain is often equivalent to the likes of, say, cocaine on an adult's brain, right? When you get to sort of 20 to 25 and your mesolimbic system's connected to that prefrontal cortex, there is next to no uh, association with psychopaths, right? Um, definitely, we still see it with things like methamphetamine, uh, realistically, because it, it increases dopamine at astronomical amounts, right? But very, very unlikely over the age 24 to 5 of the to have a psychotic response to it. So, you know, the evidence from the Dunedin study says, yes, if we expose young kids to high-potency cannabis, there's a correlation if, if you use high or strong products, young age, um, and heavy use, it does increase the risk, right, um, to a psychotic response. But evidence also shows us as those that are using young and heavy have some form of conflict with these underlying grief, violence, whatever it be. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. It was great. I guess another myth or concern people have is, and maybe it's linked to the psychosis and schizophrenia, is that um, that the use of cannabis can cause violence. Um, is there a connection there? So if you leave, read the literature from perhaps the likes of the Say No campaign, that was one of the startling headlines that uh, I saw. And you actually read the article 
and what it says is for a small portion of people, uh, it can cause psychosis, right? Well, there's a psychotic response for a very small amount. And when people are in psychosis, they can sometimes become that's irrelevant to the cannabis, right? Uh, because if people are in it and they're unwell and they're treated poorly, they can elevate and escalate pretty quickly, you know? And that's not cannabis that does it, that's the form of the herb beneath it. So, you know, when you think about it, there, there is an argument around chicken and egg, right? Which come first? The mental health, hurt, the trauma, or the use of cannabis and other drugs? Often it's the trauma and the hurt. You know, the majority of people that use cannabis, for example, and, and we've got to be really mindful that 590,000 people used it last year. And I, I, I'd say it probably escalated slightly under, uh, over level four because people were trying to cope with what's going on. 590 odd thousand people used cannabis um, last year. And for me, we don't see any associated violence with a few who I work with, work aid in, in counties and North Shore. Um, you know it yourself, working with our, our young people. If they're on methamphetamine, if they're on alcohol, yes, there's violence associated with it. But the majority of them that are using cannabis, it, it, it's actually to reduce their state, right? It's actually to calm them down. And, and for many, um, I haven't seen uh, violence associated with cannabis. Um, I imagine, and I haven't used it for a long time, but I imagine if someone ran out and they were dependent and they had um, perhaps, you know, or a post-traumatic stress sort of background and, and the cannabis was helping to manage their symptoms and now they no longer have it, that those symptoms could present and there could be aggression or coming down of a drug that they're on. It's always emotion. But realistically, we don't see any violence associated with cannabis. And I guess the biggest concern people have is that it causes mental illness um, and causes depression and anxiety. Um, is it the same as, I guess, the other things, that it's a factor, but it's not the cause? Um, it, it's really interesting. So yet again, it depends on whose research. So... Uh, Denson and Thomas in the States, 9,000 odd people surveyed over the age of 25 that use cannabis uh, recreationally. It decreased the likelihood of things like um, depression, right? And, and so when you look at anxiety, um, and let's be quite clear around it, people struggle with anxiety for a range of different reasons. Um, but what we know around anxiety is if you use a product, for example, that was high THC and low CBD, um, then it's probably going to make your anxiety worse, right? Um, but if you use a product that is CBD-focused without the THC, it can abate anxiety. And what we've got to remember is that, is that many of our young people are with depression and anxiety, right? We know the figures. It's around one in five, one in six. And many of them uh, put on prescription medication for it. So I went to a decile 10 school not that long ago, 60-odd students, you know, half of them on prescription medication for depression and anxiety. Uh, and to me, the idea that we are treating depression and anxiety with medication that is dependent forming without thinking about some of the alternative options around good people to talk to, good environments for our young people to thrive in, ensuring they're housed and fed and well looked after, um, but also uh, that a pill will not fix it. Right? And cannabis is a drug. Right, so there's side effects for some, um, but when you think about anxiety and benzodiazepines or post-traumatic stress disorder and using things like tramadol, I've got a, a client that used eight tramadol a day when he came back from Afghanistan. 
And we got them to a particular doctor that is um, recognised and understands cannabinoids. And um, he now takes two drops of CBD oil a day and has had next to no intrusion since. So, you know, it causes mental health. Chicken and egg again, you know, what causes mental health in New Zealand? Lack of connection, poverty, witnessing domestic violence, what's the grief, loss, loss of connection. Those are the drivers, right? And, and when, you, when our kids get to 12, 13, 14, and they have no way of coping with the complexities of the world, they look around and what they see is mum and dad using alcohol or someone using cannabis. And that's the danger of it, right? It, it is that they use it for coping with the complexities of the world. But the majority of New Zealanders, right, and out of the 590-odd thousand Zealanders that used it last year, a large portion of them, will be things like lawyers, doctors, you know? maybe some police officers. You know what I mean? It's it, it's not uh, the low decile sort of cannabis is permeates everywhere, right? Um, you go to a party in Auckland and within half an hour, someone has gone around the back in a group and is smoking pot, you know? And should they be criminalised for it? I don't think so. Yeah. And so I guess probably the last like myth that we hear, well, is it a myth? I'll chuck this to you, is that it causes sort of long-term memory loss. Is that true? Um, so what the evidence actually shows us is that uh, it impacts, uh, there's no impact on long-term memory. Um, there is a brief impact on short-term, uh, depending on how much you use it, again, the potency and things like that. So um, and think about some of the users uh, that are well known around the world, uh, you know, Steve Jobs and people like that. You know, um, uh, there's a wealth of people that use or choose to use cannabis over the likes of alcohol uh, that it's had no impact on, right? And um, when we look at the damage that drugs do to the brain, right, if we look right across the whole spectrum, we're talking morphine, heroin, we're talking alcohol, the most dangerous drug that humans consume is alcohol, right? And, and, you know, we're okay with that. And we'll sit there at home and we'll have a bottle of wine a night or two bottles of wine a night. And then we'll judge someone for sort of going home and choosing to use cannabis, right? Um, we know that alcohol uh, currently causes around 75% of weekend crime, right? About half of it male assault female. But presentations of cannabis-related harm is next to zero, right? Unless you're a young person on the streets, Māori or Pacific, picked up with a tinny in your pocket, right? And, and then the harm is the addic uh, the conviction that they get or the the justice sector. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a, look, it's interesting. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say it's the best thing in the world, right? Because it's not. There's harm associated with it. But what I want you to understand as people listening to this is whether you hate cannabis, whether you are completely opposed, whether it, it breaches your fundamental beliefs, you are one of five million people. And, uh, you know, if you are voting out of just your personal experience or what you know, which is very perhaps unresearched and, and, and limited knowledge around it, then that to me is a, a struggle, right? Because for you and me, who work with young people within our system, Māori and Pacific, we see the damage that the justice sector does, right? And what the evidence says is if you convict someone of cannabis in their teenage years, it increases their youth, right? 
in 95% of all young people that get a conviction with cannabis actually increases their use. We've got no education around it in schools, right? Uh, you know, very limited. The teachers delivering it have no understanding around it. You know, we, people, the other argument, of course, and, and you'll know this, is, oh, well, we wanted medicinal, and, and we've got medicinal. You know, in March this year, we got medicinal, and, and people have access to it. But yet again, I, I'm from a, a middle poorer to middle class sort of scenario. My weekly income is fairly disposed, and if I needed cannabis uh, to heal me for any reason, uh, I couldn't afford it under the current regime at the doctor, right? And that's the other thing is that the, the GPs are only giving out two of 140 cannabinoids. So, you know, even the medicinal argument is sort of um, a little bit mute to accessibility for our poorer communities, right? They can't afford 600 a month to pay for their drops. So the criminalization, that's a, that's a big, you know, argument for, for legalization, right? Um, yeah. But obviously there's, there's some perspectives that are saying, well, actually criminalization is going down, you know, we're charging less and less people. Are we going in the right direction, like heading towards decriminalization? Do we need to legalize or is that just going to add a whole bunch of extra um, issues into the mix? Look, the funny thing about uh, the argument, and I guess 15 or 20 years ago, if we were sitting here having this debate, I, I would be saying, no, we shouldn't give it to the government, right? Let's decriminalise it, you know, leave it in the power of the people, right? And, and I still, there's a, a component on me that is anti having the government control of it, right? But because I've read the legislation and understand the legislation, I have a lot more faith that because the people that are driving it are researchers. Now, if you look at uh, the Prime Minister's sort of chief, um, chief science advisory group around it, I look at the group and I know most of them, right? You know, Doug Salmon, legend in the sector around research, Chris Wilkins, David Newcomb, uh, uh, Joseph Bowden, who's the head of the Dunedin Otago, you know, uh, Chris's Massey University, and they've looked at the research, right? And they can't find any reason why we wouldn't legalise it. Criminalisation for me when I was a smoker uh, would have meant that I could have grown some plants at home and I didn't have to pay tax. There's still a black market system for it. And um, although I don't get convicted for it, there's no control over it, right? So how do we manage access to youth? How do we get some resourcing into what to me is one of the most important things is education around mental health and well-being to our children in, in the school environment. So look, I, I would have been keen to decriminalise all drugs. I think you know uh, that on me, let's decriminalise it, let's punish people for selling it to our kids, let's punish people for bringing it in. And I don't think the government will ever go there because they don't have the capacity then to extract revenue from it. However, the legalisation and control of it does allow a person that is still a little bit rebellious grow two plants uh, themselves or four as a whanau at home uh, without conviction, as long as they're not selling it and not giving it or not exposing it to our youth. And, and to me, that's uh, it's the best of both worlds. It means that if you're a lawyer uh, and you don't want to grow it because you're busy but you want to smoke it, then you can go to your shop and get it, right? And it's regulated THC, 15% max, 5% in your edibles, and no marketing, plain packaging, uh, no advertising around it, all these sort of things. Um, and then if you're the West Auckland, you know, Bogan that is anti-establishment, then you can grow your two to four plants um, 
and sort of smoke it and you can give it or pass it to your friends as long as there's no monetary um it's no longer deemed criminal you know so it's a balance between criminalization we decriminalize uh cannabis effectively or a soft form of decriminalization but still 2019 latest figures over 5,000 still convicted for a majority of them under 30 majority maori and pacific so even though we have the soft stance if you're a, a white, middle to upper class young person and you get caught with cannabis, you probably won't get a conviction. If you have an attitude towards authority and you are Māori or Pacific um, and associated perhaps with a whānau that has a history within the justice sector, then you're probably going to get a conviction for it. Uh, and, and the other thing, uh, they say it's a gateway drug and it's been debunked many, many times, but... You know, for those that are saying it is the gateway drug, well, I'll, what I'll say, and I will acknowledge that cannabis being illegal, right, and you go to a tinny shop to buy it, and the groups that you hang around with in order to get that illegal product are always offering you other things. Right? And, and so if you have to hang around in illegal circles to get your drugs from uh, uh, someone that's also selling meth, they're going to try and sell you meth, right? But if you can go down to your shop, at 25 or 30 years of age and buy a plain packaging uh, at 15% THC and go home and, and have a smoke, you're not exposed to that uh, that criminal element. And so another reason why, you know, even though they're saying that's why it should be illegal, it's another reason to actually decriminalise So, I mean, getting rid of the black market, that's, that's an attractive sort of... Um sort of avenue but it's not really going to get rid of the full black market isn't it and isn't there still a risk that our young people are going to be criminalized because they're under 20 and they're still going to be accessing it so to be honest looking at the legislation uh, something i struggle with is the idea that we will find our young people but underneath that is referral to health service right and so uh i guess for me the idea of punishing a young person for smoking cannabis uh, to sit there and ask them why they smoke it and understand why they're using it gives you a far better understanding of how to help that young person and punish them. However, there's a struggle with many saying, you know, this is going to expose it to our young more. To me, the trend worldwide don't show that, right? The evidence worldwide. But actually, in general, in New Zealand even, our young ones, our 13, 14, 15-year-olds that have traditionally started to consume, right, are actually choosing not to. In New Zealand, right, and making that decision themselves. So we're starting to see consumption amongst our youth populations increase, not amongst our high risk, but amongst the majority of our young people. And so what that shows us is actually, if we trust our young people and give them accurate information and evidence and give them facts and include them in that conversation, then they will make good decisions. Whereas if we tell them, you should give up, it is uh, the worst drug in the world, and if you smoke it, you're going to end up crazy and killing someone, and all their mates smoke it, and none of them have gone crazy and killed, then we lose every opportunity of engaging with what's actually driving what's sitting underneath, which is hurt and difference and trauma and, you know, school and ADHD and dyslexia and all these things that um, sit underneath it, and that's where we need to sit. The, the question we need to ask ourselves is not not judging our whānau for using alcohol and drugs, but the question is, why do so many of New Zealanders have to use some form of substance to cope with the complexities of the world? And it's, it's a New Zealand thing, you know? You've got alcohol 
drinkers going, look at those bloody drug smokers and drug smokers going, look at those gamblers and gamblers going, look at those obese people and obese people going, look at those alcoholics, you know, we're all trying to make sense of what's going on in this world and, and based on what we've learned from our operating environment and how we've conditioned ourselves accordingly, we choose to use the drug that suits, right? For some of us, that will cause harm. The majority of us may not, right? But the thing is, why criminalise one and celebrate another? You know, we celebrate alcohol, Steinlager, and the old way, and you're punished for smoking something that is fairly natural, right? To me, we're all a little bit confused around um, consumption, but understanding why people use and having conversations with young people around what drives use and how to keep themselves far more effective than punishing them or finding them, you know? So I think like a, a lot of people are starting to maybe move into the decriminalization, like you've been saying, and, and you know, that, that statistic about the, the use going down in our, our young population, that's really encouraging. And I think people will be thinking, well, I mean, is there a risk here? Because the big fear, I think, is big corporates getting involved in marketing to our young people and that that's going to change the gain that we've seen with young people choosing not to use this drug. Is, is there a risk there? I mean, is, is that fear of big um, business getting involved in, you know, changing that trend something we should be worried about? It's interesting, uh, yet again, uh, coming back to the legislation and what is being proposed. So there is uh, no one can have a monopoly over the market. Uh, the greatest share is up to 20% of the market. Predominantly, uh, anyone that's given a license to grow, uh, New Zealand-based, uh, must include uh, Māori involved in it. Um, and actually, uh, the preference uh, non-profit organisations. So um, the legislation is covering against the idea of the, the face of big tobacco coming in and sort of, you know, that's that... That, the picture of the gummy bear with the big cigar. But none of us, right, none of us that sit in this health and addictions want that, right? And there is no way any of the boards or any of the people advocating around this want big tobacco to come in. And, and so it's very clear, and it, it's written in the legislation, that it must be informed by the cannabis uh, authority or regulatory authority, which will be established, uh, in accordance with the Treaty of Waitangi, acknowledging the people that are, have the most harm from it, uh, ensuring that they get the benefits out of it and their communities get the benefit out of it, and, and the money goes back into health and education for our young. We don't have that now, right? You know, how many times have we, well, you and me, gone to send a young person somewhere and there's just no access to help or they're turned away because no one can manage them, right? And, and so, yeah, we, we need to start to rethink um, the idea of how we help uh, future generations move through the space. But the evidence is showing us overseas that young people, even in an inflated legalised situation, which is America, aren't blocking out and picking up. It's actually 30 to 50 year olds, uh, 30 to 60 year olds that we see a, a, a blip in and then it, it sort of moderates again. And that's people trying and experimenting uh, or trying to relive their youth or have underlying sort of health ailments that they try uh, this as opposed to their benzos or their coding. So that's not what we're seeing overseas. And I think our legislation is well above and beyond anything that I've seen out of New Zealand. So, you know, 
And the vote for yes doesn't mean that we're just going to be out there smoking it the next day, right? It, it means now we can sit down with all the people involved and find the best way for New Zealand, right? Yeah, some good points there. Um, one of the, I think a lot's been made around like how much you can carry your purchase, so the 14 grams. Is, is, that, a, is that a lot like from your perspective in terms of what people use on a, on a daily basis or purchase normally? So the average user, and, and look, I've got, I got friends that use uh, on a fairly regular basis, right? Uh, we'll probably use, you know, over, over the week or two weeks, maybe half of that, quarter of that. Um, so realistically, a heavy user, a real heavy user that wakes and bakes and um, sort of has the morning tea and the lunchtime, and a, you know, they'll get to perhaps half an ounce a week. Right? And, and the idea that um, you know 14 grams is is a lot. It, it's not a lot of cannabis, right? It's uh, the average user that would probably last them actually closer to a month or two months, right? You know, one joint a night, couple over the weekend, whatever it be. So yeah, the reason they're doing it so people don't have a whole lot of cannabis on them, driving around, exposing it to young people. I don't see any problem with 14 grand. The idea, you know, the say no to dope, but that takes amount of joints and people will be smoking that a day. God, I, I was a heavy cannabis user as well as a heavy meth user and smoking 14 grams a day with bloody hard, man. You know, uh, no concerns. Yeah. I guess like one of the, you know, as we sort of start to wrap up this, obviously every side of the debate, people care, you know, they don't yep. want people to be harmed. They don't want, um, especially our young people to be more vulnerable. And it's just then how do we, you know, get the data and the information to make the best decision. There is, I guess, a characteristic that those who are supporting, yes, uh, these sort of pro-drug people that just want drugs to be free for everyone. Like, I mean, how would you characterize yourself? Or like, why, why are you voting yes? So it's got nothing to do with the drug for me. You know, um, I've had one of the say no dope, dope uh, light up on my Facebook and say things like, oh, you must be profiting from it or, you know, that I'm going to make some money out of it or, you know, there's a reason why. Oh, man, my genuine reason or why I want it illegal is for young people, right? It is to actually get the resourcing into effective education and counselling and mental health services somehow for our young people. Um, but also that I don't want our 25 to 30 year olds or our 20 to 30 year olds to be convicted uh, that impacts on them for the rest of their life, right? And so, you know, as someone that was convicted at 17 of cultivation and possession of cannabis for supply, changed the course of my life right and, and so how do we instead of punishing people for trauma and hurt and grief and using cannabis uh recreationally how do we sort of come alongside and make sure people have access to effective health the other reason i guess um, i'm pro is that we can actually start research right? and if there is the potential for cannabinoid therapy which is being hailed around the world right uh, if we look at a lot of the research out of jerusalem and that we have the capacity to perhaps beat things like diabetes without using medications that only have a seven percent efficacy right and things like epilepsy you know we give people epilim it, it, it hardly works yet we know that cbd and and some of the other cannabinoids um, actually help with epilepsy so morphine opioids tramadol all these prescription medications that we're giving people for ailments that don't actually cure them 
when we could be looking at the research around lead therapy medically and effectively treating them without giving them a dependent drug that will stuff their liver, kidney, heart, um, and, and capacity to live well if used for a long period of time. Right? So, so those are some of my reasons. Um, look, I've got personal reasons as well. I've got um, a family member that is terminally ill that nothing was working and um, managed to uh, connect with Green Fairy um, and take two drops at night. It helps him sleep, it helps him eat, uh, helping him survive at the moment. And, and, and he's not doing that legally, right? He's doing that through Green Fairies because Green Fairies have more knowledge and experience around medicinal cannabinoids than the majority of our doctors. So, you know, until such time as our doctors get up to date around the endocannabinoid system and that, many of them aren't going to prescribe it. None of them, are, none of it's subsidised. So people are choosing to continue to go down that, that line. Whereas if we could legalize it and write it. People could go in there and they could go, I've got anxiety. Uh, and shopkeeper could say, well, anxiety, you don't need THC, need some CBD. Here it is. Here's your $15 worth and that get through, right? You know, as opposed to a $600 trip. So there's lots of reasons why I'm voting, yes. And um, I guess as we close, as people are sort of, um, sort of still wrestling with this, right? You know, for a lot yep. of people, this will be... Um they've got a lot of think about um it's a huge sort of paradigm shift for them and, and it, a lot of what we've discussed will challenge sort of maybe what they've learned around the drug and the use and addiction and how we sort of should approach this sort of thing um i mean what would you like to leave with someone who's sort of in that space of wrestling and still asking those questions how how would you like them to approach this as they come up to the vote well i i guess um and i think i said this last time bro as just imagine Right, just imagine your child, right, at seventeen or eighteen, or your grandchild at seventeen or eighteen, that is off with his boys on a rugby trip or something, and someone pulls out some cannabis, and they're sitting in their car having a bit of a blaze, and they are arrested. How how do you want them to be treated? You know, do you want them to be referred to uh, a counselling service, a health, a youth specialist service? Or do you want them to get them locked up for the night, release the next day, three or four court appearances, perhaps a, a, a diversion the first time, and the evidence is once you've got a conviction around it, it increases the likelihood of use, um, and so they're entered into that world. That's one of the things. If you have a grandchild or a child that is multi-sclerotic or it is in chronic pain, you want them to be able to afford the medicine that it's going to help them find a way through it, you know? Or do you want them just to struggle in pain? You know, we've had 60-odd years or thereabouts of prohibition. A vote for no doesn't change anything. We're, you know, we're still spending uh, 330,000 police hours and 200 million of your taxpayer money convicting people and fining them $1,000 for a plant that has helped them. So a recent case, right? This is... This is a true recent case. Police set up a helicopter for almost a whole day, found three people, right, uh, that had little plots. Now, let alone the cost of flying the helicopter at, at around grand an hour, plus the police time, plus the pilot time, plus all that. The three people they got, right, two had medicinal cannabis licenses but couldn't afford certificates, but couldn't afford to get their medical cannabis. So they were growing their own. The other had medical weeds 
I didn't have the license. So they went through court, right? And I mean, like, court costs around about 1800 per session for your lawyer, times that by three, three sessions. It, it could be up to 30000 a court appearance times three. Uh, so effectively, it cost us almost $400,000 to put three people through court. And they got under a $1,000 fine for all three of them. So why are we spending half a million dollars to convict three people and find them $1,000 for a drug that actually they've got a medical certificate for? You know, this is the, the irony of it all, I guess, is that we sort of go, no, let's punish people. But we know that doesn't work. So let's buy something that is evidence-based. And the reason in America cannabis was made illegal, there was a war against it, was things like big pharma, big alcohol. And, of course, the petroleum companies because of things like hemp. It's got a history of political and financial and economic, but let's get away from all the nonsense we know and let's look at science and read the, the Prime Minister's advisory science information. It clearly outlines it in a non-biased way. Do some good research. If you're voting no just because you've your own experience or if you're voting no just because it's bad, then kind of a sad place to be. Hey, thanks, Pete. I uh, really appreciate your corridor as usual. Um, thanks for all the knowledge that you sort of imparted on us there. Um, and I know we'll have chats in the future. Cheers, brother. No worries, bro. So that was Pete, as always. A lot of great things to say, a lot of information to impart upon us. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a real big topic, and I just want to say, I guess, from the beginning that there is different perspectives everywhere, um, and it's so easy for this conversation to become one of, you know, left this right, um, you know, we're right, you're wrong, we care about people, you don't, um, and, and that's on both sides, you know, like, both sides of the bait, I think, so far, there's been some real toxic quoted uh, all that has occurred and I think you know like we said in the in the show in the interview that it's really important to acknowledge that I think everyone cares you know everyone wants the best for our rangatahi everyone wants the best for our people um, I think at the heart you know I, I don't think anyone wants a result that's hurting people and causing suffering and causing pain um, there's just some really different perspectives on what is best and how we're going to best help people. Um, so yeah, from the outset, I think that's really important that, you know, when Lambs are signed, a real key thing that we talk about is um, to listen is to love. And so as we have these conversations up to the election, I think it's really important that we center love for one another at, this, at, at I guess, the center of this, that we listen to one another, hear each other's concerns, and then engage each other in love. Because we're going to move the conversation a lot further that way than if we just come into it and blast the other person because hey we think you're wrong or you think I'm wrong or whatever that is so yeah let's have this conversation but let's do it well yeah but Summer like what did you think as you listened to Pete um, and has he sort of like shared um, I guess all that he shared and, and his perspective and why he's voting yes I mean your life experience has been very different to what Pete's had right and, and the way he's grown up and you know what he's seen um yeah, I mean, what 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 sort of came out for you, or you know, where are you sort of in this space? Um, so 
I grew up in a very conservative Christian family, mostly in the United States, um, and then moving here when I was a teenager, and sort of middle class, and what I knew of drugs was that they were bad and I shouldn't do them, and being a good girl um, and a rule follower by nature, I did not do drugs, and I didn't really know anyone who did, and even now, growing up as an adult, um, I don't really have friends that I know of that um, do um, smoke cannabis or have any other kind of drugs, and if they have in their lifetime, it's something they kind of left behind them as a teenager, so... I do have quite a different perspective and I think having you, Erin, around and your experiences with young people um, that sometimes you share with me different perspectives um, on how it, drugs can affect people and also working as a volunteer with young people in a very an environment where they're able to be real. I've um, seen sort of a different side of people that um, then how I grew up and so it's given me a slightly different perspective and so hearing Pete talk about some of the complexities around cannabis, uh, how it works, um, what sort of more accurate information is around its effect on people and its use, it makes me think that what I grew up with was overly simplistic and that it's really not just an obvious thing. Drugs are not just bad. They're often a coping mechanism and they're not the best coping mechanism. And if you agree with that, that doesn't necessarily mean you think that they should be illegal. It's a lot more complicated than that. It was helpful to see and hear more from from that perspective and to get more information around that. Yeah, and I, I think that whole idea of... Um, I mean, I grew up probably similar, um, Christian, more conservative sort of background. And, you know, this real black and white, like it's wrong or it's right. And if it's wrong, then we need to stand against it and we need to make sure that it's illegal and that, you know, we don't be seen to condone it. Um, and if it's right, then, you know, you support it and it's a good thing. Um and I think what I found is it's just, like you said, it's just so much more complex. Um, but I think there's sometimes a feeling that, especially within the Christian community, which we were both a part of, that there's only one Christian response to this. You know, there's just, um, you're against all drugs and, you know, it should all be banned and it should be illegal. Um, and I think there's, there's definitely some change there, you know. There's, there's a move towards decriminalization. But I think there's still the strong... Um, uh, a strong idea that this is wrong so we need to resist it i guess as i've grown i've seen that sometimes what's best for people or well, i mean not, maybe not best is the wrong word but what actually is the most successful in making change or bringing healing or bringing home wholeness is not simple it's really messy um and sometimes the the messier it is the more successful it might be in the long run if that makes sense um yeah i think it's really good to ask the complex questions of a complex problem as well like instead of just saying it's bad asking why are people using something that isn't the most helpful thing necessarily and um i mean at the moment something that's illegal um 
as well. Why are, why are people choosing to use it? What makes them do it? And I think that we often can stereotype people's use of it um, without actually knowing um, the research or the facts. Um, I'm a trained librarian, so I'm big on facts and proper research. But asking those good questions, why are people using it? What makes people stop using it? How does that journey come and what's what's going to be helpful for people does it being illegal help people use it less and sort of these conversations that um, I've had with you and listening to Pete and other people make me think that actually answering those questions gives us a far more helpful approach to what we can do and that actually legalizing it is a better option than making it illegal because it actually is more helpful for people and if we have a real good bit of legislation which this um i have not read it myself it's way too long um but you've been reading it aaron and um from from what i've gleaned um that it's actually not not a bad piece of legislation at all and it actually the goal is to decrease the use of it and if we can get a good piece of legislation, it might be much more helpful in helping people to use it less than actually just making it illegal, which seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. But if you ask those questions, why are people using it? What helps them to stop or why do they choose to stop? And how does um, being criminalized for it affect them? How um, might another approach work is actually, it's quite practical and it's much more realistic way of um, approaching it to to make a difference yeah and i i think one thing if you take away one thing is actually just go read the legislation you know if you're going to vote on it um, okay that's like 152 pages long so maybe the summary um, but you know that's something that's really i've been on the fence until i actually sat down and, and read it and that's really pushed me in terms of where i'm going with this but i mean just to bring it home you know, there's been a lot of concerns raised and we addressed those in the interview around, you know, the damage that cannabis can do to people. Um, and Pete talked about, you know, chicken, the egg, what comes first, you know, um, is it mental illness? Is it psychosis? Is it violence? Or um, is it using, or is it trauma? You know, like what what is actually driving these behaviors? Is it the drug or is it this, you know, trauma behind it? And, I just sort of, I was reflecting of this one story that I sort of come back to a lot and I've seen this so many times with different young people. Um, but this one story just sort of encapsulates it. I remember supporting this one rangatahi who everyone was concerned about. Um, he'd sort of disappeared and some concerns that he wasn't engaging in his schoolwork and he wasn't turning up to school and he was withdrawing from his friends. And I mean, people were worried at that point people were mostly worried because it was NCEA and he wasn't really getting the grades that you know they thought he should be getting so I mean we were caught in um, I was assigned to be his youth worker and you know after sort of weeks of trying to track him down I finally found him at his home and um, got to do a bit of an assessment with him and you know as we were talking it became really clear to me that he was struggling with some pretty major depression um, and anxiety and um, it also became clear that he was using cannabis quite regularly. And I remember talking to him about it and saying, well, how are you doing? And when did you start? And he said, well, I started about two years ago. And I asked him, well, why? What, what prompted you to start? And he sort of told me the story around how he had attempted suicide. Um, and he'd had multiple attempts. And, 
then he'd started using cannabis and he found that he was actually able to control his mental health a lot better and that he hadn't made any suicide attempts since he'd used. Well, obviously, as we talked, we both identified that the cannabis use wasn't something he wanted to do long term. Um, you know, he needed to um, start to pull back on that. But he didn't really have the coping mechanisms in place to help him to deal with his mental illness. Um, he wasn't getting the support. He didn't have the healthy support mechanisms and cannabis was really the only thing that was working for him. So I said, you know, don't worry about it. You know, like we'll get rid of the cannabis in time, but, you know, we're going to work on building in some really healthy coping mechanisms to help you deal with your depression and help you deal with your anxiety and get the treatment for that. And eventually the cannabis will disappear. You know, and I, I spoke to his whanau and we recommended that they go to um, sort of a mental health uh, practitioner and get assessed and get some information um, and get some support. Well, you know, from multiple factors, um, he didn't get that help and pressure was put on him to stop the use and, um, you know, someone actually took away the cannabis that they ha- that he had. They found it, they, stopped, they confiscated it from him. He escalated that night, he attempted suicide. You know, first time for years. You know, that's one story. But, you know, just to say, I think all those examples that Pete put out there, I've seen. And that question of, you know, what really is underlying this use, what is causing the use, is more and more um, apparent to me that it is, like Pete said, it's trauma, it's hurt, it's disconnection. And so if that's the thing that's the problem, then addressing that is the first place to start. And so then the question comes, well, with legalization, is that going to help us to address that better? Or not, and is prohibition is that helping us to address it better or not? That's the questions we have to ask. Yeah, it's really good. Like Pete finished up saying, it's really we need to think about people not as these stereotypes, but as real people. Um, maybe even thinking about people we care about if we found out that they were using cannabis for something that they were struggling with and it was helping them to cope. How would we want them to be treated? Um, would we want them to have to go through the justice system or would we rather have them be able to go through the health system and get options to, um, as Aaron said with his young person, the idea would be to help him get the support he needed so that he know it was no longer relying on um, the drug to get through. So yeah, I think it really helps to think about real people and for me, the more real people I've known or even the individual stories I've heard of people make such a big difference because it helps me to care and to see people as people and not just a stereotype and then see how this might be affecting them and think about what it would mean for them. Yeah. So I guess as we're wrapping up, um, I just encourage you, you know, like take this away, think about it, mull it over. Um, do your research, you know, on, on both sides. But, you know, this is a complex issue and we need to treat it as such. Um, as Pete said, prohibition doesn't change anything. So we've got to ask, does something need to change? And is this this the right step in the right direction? Um, so, yeah, just encourage you to have the conversation, um, do your research, um, and, and engage in love, you know? Remember, at the end of the day, these referendum, uh, they're going to come, they're going to go, but the relationships we have with each other, they're going to remain. So let's remember that... Um, our friends and our whānau, <laughs> they're there for life. So, yeah, whatever. Anyway, that's us. We're going to go change a nappy and feed a baby. You can probably hear the slack sleep is kicking in. So, see ya. Thanks for having me, Erin. Oh, it was great having you on the show. Good night.
been listening to Win Lambs is Silent, the podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you are listening, and join the conversation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The music from this podcast is from the album Dissonance by Jess Jackson and Leon Shelley. Listen to more from these artists on Spotify.